This is a Malibu Bakare lecturer in the politics of race and decolonial studies in the School of History, Languages, Cultures at the University of Liverpool, and you are listening to the Academy's Developing Practice podcast. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Academy's Developing Practice podcast. In this episode, we chat with Amal about her work to decolonize the curriculum in international politics, and we reflect on how the principles of her practice can be transferred to other disciplines. We hope you enjoy. Amal, we're really pleased to be speaking to you today. Decolonizing the curriculum has been a key priority at our institution for a while, and indeed many colleagues across the higher education sector are keen to decolonize their curriculum. And so hearing about your work, I know will be extremely interesting to many of us. But before we get started, we like to get to know our guests a little bit. So could you tell us about your background and how you've arrived at the role you're in today at the University of Liverpool? Uh, Thank you so much, Alex. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, So I am a recent, uh, a newbie and early career lecturer. I am originally from, in terms of where I've lived before, I lived in Canada, but I'm born in Saudi Arabia. Um, And then I'm a Nigerian. So Nigerian, Canadian, Saudi born, um, now a UK British citizen. So it's been a wild ride the past few years. Uh, I did my PhD at Aberystwyth, what um, in Aberystwyth, Wales. So uh, my background's in international relations, and that's supposed to be the first department of international relations in the world. So I recently moved over um, just from Ceredigion. I came to the role just out of an interest in sort of the politics that were surrounding my existence. I am Black and I'm Muslim. I was in the era of 9-11, so a large part of my youth and adolescence was defined about interventions in um, Afghanistan and Iraq and how the world responded to it. I was introduced to different uh, post-colonial scholarship, particularly Edward Said, when I was an undergraduate. And that developed into an interest in sort of the anti-colonial politics of counterterrorism and race um, within the United Kingdom and Canada. Fantastic. So lots of experience from around the world there, and you've ended up in the UK. How are you finding living in the rainy old Northwest? I was, uh, <laughs> my office is on the third floor in Abercrombie Square, and I was I was just joking yesterday that I was, I really like the monsoon weather. Um, <laughs> it's very, Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're alone in that, but okay. <laughs> Fantastic. And would you say that those experiences you've had of living in so many different places, has that then enhanced the work that you've been doing in this field? Yeah, so I usually try to sort of have uh, understanding of how the global features in the local. I think international politics is conventionally known as being a politics that focuses on what's going on out there, whether it's overseas, whether it's in the global south, um, usually not in the Western Hemisphere, and that's considered to be like the space of domestic politics. My work um, in most cases revolves around saying, okay, colonial legacies and because of um, former empires and British imperialism, so what happens when colonialism goes away and what happens when the flags are gone, we still have the structures, the ideas, the institutions that reflect 
what happened when we were overseas and the relations that we established with people who are, we consider to be a world away in our own backyard, and especially with Liverpool, its history in the transatlantic slave trade. Um, there's, it's The city is a monument to that. So it was a real honor to come and be at such an institution where there's a university-wide acknowledgement of the relevance of colonial legacies in the classroom and at the university level, as you can see with this conversation. So yes, um, it's it's been wonderful being here so far. Well, it's brilliant to have you with us on the podcast tomorrow. I mean, just thinking about your your background, I recently did a ancestry test and and uh, it came up with thirty five percent Irish, I think, and I was like, "Oh, Irish, great!" But when you think about it, really, in the whole scope of the world, that's so tight. It's such a tiny little region compared to Nigeria, Canada, Saudi Arabia. <laughs> I wish I had some of. I wish I had a more interesting story to tell, like you have with with my background, but unfortunately I don't. You've sort of mentioned it already, but obviously today we're talking about decolonizing the curriculum and you've, you've hinted at, you know, you interested in your background and things like that, but can you tell us from your experience, you know, what prompted you to start that work? You know, what, what was the passion that led you there? So I had the pleasure of writing about this and media diversified. I don't think I shared that link. I can say that. But when I was a PhD student, um, just as when I was an undergrad, I was kind of asked about um, why I felt what I felt postcolonialism was for those who are in politics or in English. It's an interdisciplinary field. It's just, for example, uh, a cross discipline interest in how colonial legacies manifest in today. So that's a variety of spaces. Mine's just, I work on counterterrorism um, and anti-terrorism in, in North America and how that affects policy and law. But it's just important to acknowledge what's out there. And I think for me, I just thought that we need to consider more um, of how what we're doing has a history and a past. I think there's a lot of debate when you're talking about terrorism, about where it started. Um, and it defines people's identities and who we are. I think for me, for example, a, a prominent example is the, the recent legislation that we had, whether it was 2015, whether it was 2003, recent in terms of across time, um, just about how, for example, extremism is separate from British identity and how British identity involves a sort of uh, this kind of non-existent thing because there's not really a constitution, but we know that we support democracy, we support um, freedom of speech, we support, we have these sort of ideals. And then there's this idea that those who are a threat to us don't share those ideals. And it was just, I was interested in that kind of discussion, that debate, how it kind of created a binary between communities that was not only us versus them, but those who don't belong and those who do. And usually that kind of creates a narrative that connects to what we've always had, unfortunately, um, as a result of international uh, relations and how it's functioned, where us versus them has spanned globally. So usually those who were affected um, in those dialogues about terrorism, counterterrorism, anti-terrorism, interventions in the name of counterterrorism are those who we see as coming from somewhere else, even though many of us, especially for example, here in Liverpool, not including me since I came from somewhere else recently, have historic connections to the city and they, we all see this as our home and we all see this country as our home. 
And it was the same in Canada as well. Um, that's why my research usually spans between the UK and Canada as a former um, um, member of the British Empire as well, um, where we have those same debates, um, except there's a sort of a more North Americanized twist where we talk about um, for example, issues of whiteness more, issues of far-right extremism more, um, because we're just kind of struggling, I think, as a society with how to address these issues of identity, populism, and uh, just nationalist politics. Gee, I'm going to ask a silly question. Okay. I think it's probably one that <laughs> maybe podcast listeners might think, oh, I wonder why he hasn't asked that. But why do you think we need to decolonize the curriculum? I think we need to decolonize the curriculum because we have an idea that we need to live here and now when we're doing research, when we're corresponding addressing contemporary politics, that isn't really working out for us anymore. So I think that the idea of, okay, it, it seems like we're harping on the past is something that comes up a lot, or we're just, for example, being politically correct or trying to, for example, uh, please people rather than no it's actually taking some hard look at what is in in essence what we consider to be objective is usually science positivism um something that we can see but for communities around the world that exist alongside of us an objective fact is the way that things are now is a reflection of the past and they, the way they continue to be is tied because we haven't let go of the past even though we think we have it's when we determine, okay, we need to dissect how we think about what constitutes um, valid knowledge, what constitutes um, a valid work experience, what constitutes um, being a valued asset to the university. And when we assess our standards for what constitutes being a British person, um, we realize that no, the attachments that to the past that we are saying that we've got over and that we've moved on, we've just cemented it and fortified it and said that this is the way the world is. I think that's a main reason for the decolonizing project. We don't like to question things as often as we think we actually do. I think we all like to feel that we're very deeply minded or we reflect on the world around us and decolonizing brings out the fact that no, you actually have had a blind spot in who you are and recognizing how you came to be that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. I don't know if it's just me, Amal, but it seems that people are more aware that we've got that blind spot now. There's been so much more discussion around this whole idea of decolonizing the curriculum, maybe in the last five to eight years. Before that, I, I don't remember having those conversations. What do you think's prompted that? I, I think with a lot of academics and, and colleagues who work across HE, there is now a genuine desire to decolonize the curriculum. What has prompted that? Where has that come from so recently? I think that there is a general global fear about the direction the world is going in, whether it comes from a variety of global challenges, whether it be climate change, whether it be the pandemic. I think that's a very big one, particularly for the past five years. Um, I, or whether it be um, the Black Lives Matter movement. I know that's a very big marker throughout the city of Liverpool, although it's not the same everywhere. Um, and I think a lot of people are scared. And I would like to think authentically that most people care and they want to do something about it. I know that other people feel like it's just the 
way the world is moving, so we need to go on. And there is, um, for example, in some cases, commercial benefits that are support when it gets businesses involved. Um, so it's good to be hypercritical of where that support is coming from. But I do genuinely hope and think that most people care about the direction the world is going in and want to do something about it. Fantastic. So it'd be really good to just unpack kind of what this looks like in practice. If, you know, there are colleagues listening who have that genuine desire to really want to decolonize and and look at their curriculum at, at this level, how can they go about that? What does that look like? So it often involves uh, things that we don't consider part of our teaching um, and our research. So um, in some cases it does, and I think that's the one that's been easier for a lot of people. So I think the popular example that people often confuse with decolonizing, and I say confuse lightly because I understand um, not everyone who's coming to decolonizing has an academic angle to it, but is that di- diversifying the curriculum. That's an analogy that's used. So making sh- people look to see whether their resources nowadays have uh, scholars that are from the global south um, or people that they wouldn't usually normally in something that's considered alternative or a dissident perspective to whatever discipline they're working in. So decol- that's that's a good start. Um, but what we're trying, at least academics in my discipline are trying to make clear is that there's structural elements that you need to consider. So the idea is not just to diversify the curriculum. The idea is to say, are you teaching that these are alternative perspectives from and scholars emanating from the global south? And then there's conventional tradition perspectives that are still the main sites of knowledge, because then, OK, then you're just kind of adding a bit of color to your curriculum, which is, which is, I mean, go do that, but it's just not decolonizing. Um, and the structural part is examining the course itself and saying, are you reinforcing norms that suggest that there's a certain constitutive element to how this discipline exists and who should have access to it? And it also acknowledges, um, for example, uh, just how the system is operating within the department, who has access to that classroom because of structural elements, whether it's you're considering the criteria for entering the class and who's going to be in. So sports club, just like black minority ethnic students, people who have a disadvantage because of their age. So. It is a, a broad range of activities, but the idea is that structural inequality is an integral part of addressing decolonizing, not just um, diversifying and not just creating inclusion. It's all those elements together. Amal, the, the work sounds not only challenging, but complex as well at the same time. So can you tell us what are some of the key challenges that you've, that you've found with this work and maybe how you've how you've tried to overcome them? Um, I think the dialogue is very challenging about it. And right. I think because um discussing colonialism, I think some people think it's diversified from discussing when you say something structural, you have to talk about racism as well. So that's a key part of my work, talking about how colonialism and racism are linked, usually particularly because of Britain's history and Canada's, I can say. Um, well, most places that have been affected by British imperialism have the experience where they like talking about colonialism in a way that's more sanitized, um, where it was a it wasn't um, it wasn't something intentionally harmful. 
And it wasn't, there's a lot of conversation about morals. There's a lot of conversation about intent. It's, there's a lot of conversation of like, um, we know um, that this was wrong, but um, it was, and it's, that's hard. So if you have an academic research perspective where you you don't say, okay, well, your intent doesn't really matter. It's about the um, the side effects, the repercussions. Like if we're talking about structural inequality, um, we can't really talk about th- things in a way that will make people feel good after and feel like, okay, um, there's some sort of um, emotional uh, response that needs to be dissected more because in the policy space, I mean, that's very hard to do, um, but it's also a very sensitive issue where people want to have that emotional grieving. They want to have that, um, well, why do I feel so bad? Why do I feel so confronted? Um, Why do I feel so fragile? Um, And it takes time to address that, that, when you're in a institution like a university, you don't often have. So some people will have harsh reactions to being told that the way that they're going about teaching something, whether it's in any discipline, it is conducive to structural racism. That is a difficult thing to hear, but it's also a part of the decolonizing work. And we don't get to use that language. We try to sanitize it. And because we're so worried about how to package it, a lot of the time the work doesn't get done. So you you can be in the, all these processes, these conversations, and you'll be trying to push towards a goal, especially if this is your research area, but you won't actually be able to achieve what you needed to achieve because you've been trying to um, handle people's feelings in a way where they don't feel attacked, where they don't feel, where they don't feel confronted. Um, and that's very hard. So I think that's one of the things that we're it's it's a it's a double-edged sword because it's good that we're all having these conversations. Many people have been forced to have these conversations for decades. I mean, I'm only 30 and this has been a part of my life forever. <laughs> um, but other people, as you said, it's the past five years and they're having to have these difficult conversations. They're having to confront the fact that white supremacy isn't just uh, a fascist. I think that's what's commonly discussed when you're having these conversations, white supremacy is potentially a system to which they may have contributed to, or they may feel that, no, no, I've never contributed to. Um, so it's taking a lot of time to wade through these conversations because not everyone's at the same uh, step into the conversation. Not everyone's le- ready to feel the discomfort that's necessary to move forward to take action. Yeah, I can I can definitely relate to that. The dialogue must be that biggest challenge. The um it's not just at an academic level. I think there's these types of conversations happen in every part of society. I mean, I remember a conversation not too long ago actually and I was in a pub actually and someone was talking very loudly and very brashly about um things would have been much better, you know, in the time of empire. You know, and we put like like he personally, but we put railways into these countries. That sort of statement still gets, you know, those are still made. No, reflection. the railway thing a lot, and I'm very confused why the railways is the source, like the, <laughs> yeah, the source of pride of empire. Yeah, transportation. I really thought that was like the pinnacle for the British Empire, but it seems like the trains and the railways. That was, <laughs> yeah. 
It no. is strange, isn't it? You know, how people sort of cling to these outdated ideas, um, you know, and, the, and the, but there's no thought processes of what was taken from those countries as a, you know, as a result of empire. I wanted to unpack your own personal practice, Amal. As a lecturer in politics of race and decolonial studies, did you have to do any of this work personally with the programmes that you lead when you arrived at the university or because of the nature of the content of the programmes was it all slick and ready to go when when you arrived it's not slick um so what has happened because of when I was hired and I is just recently so I I had a course on politics of race and marginalization that existed already that I got to co-convene uh with my colleague um Professor Andrew Russell which was very ready but it was formatted for a different um academic who is a sociologist so I was um the one who for certain weeks was like I would like this to be more um global politics oriented where the students are talking about what's happening locally and then reflecting how does this connect to a wider legacy or what's going on in the United States. Um, but we, there was elements of that already. The one that's getting a complete spin because I had to make it as part of my, um, my job, <laughs> just being honest, was, um, this course called uh, Anti-Colonial Legacies and in International Relations, which will be running for the first time this semester in our department. Um, it's a master's course, uh, Poly 516. I'm very excited for it. And that's completely from scratch. So the first component are, is going to be one semester where it's theory. So you learn about um, a decolonizing. I say that in quotes because decolonizing, I think, because so many people have an idea what it is, I just make it clear when I will be making it clear when we start that it's a variety of things. It's not a constitutive thing. It's not just something that you can open up a book and do. It's interdisciplinary. And they'll just kind of be learning, okay, the theory behind what leads to decolonizing as a field um, and the different elements, whether anti-colonialism, post-colonialism, decolonial theory, indigeneity, um, queerness. Uh, and then the, in practice, because I know master students, I was recently one myself, um, are interested in, okay, how can we apply this in the real world? So semester two is focused on different contexts and different elements, whether it be development, whether it be political economy, whether it be climate change, where they can see how this is being practiced. So that if they continue on in academia and want to discuss it, great. But if they decide they want to go in the real world and take this knowledge with them into the, into the workforce, they can continue that too. And yeah, they have the elements and skills to do so. Fantastic. So I wonder if you can just reflect on the process of kind of building that program, Um, because I'm really keen for our listeners to get some kind of key principles around how to decolonize the curriculum. So as you've kind of built that program with a view to decolonizing, are there certain principles in the work that you've done that could be transferred to other disciplines? I'm trying to get them to reflect about real world experience and to look at structural inequality. So that's something that often I've already said isn't always brought in. Um, so they'll be looking at what's going on in Liverpool. There'll at least be connections made between the Benin and Liverpool exhibit at the World Museum. They'll be given um, activities where they're encouraged to look around the city. So there's an idea of just like empirical engagement um, and reflection on looking for sites of colonial present within the city of Liverpool around them. And then there'll be also kind of the acknowledgement of diversity of sources, 
Um, also access. So I think that's one thing we need the classroom to be one to which if you're from a variety of backgrounds, language accessibility, um, that you can have different resources. So podcasts, media learning, not just text. Um, obviously you'll have certain requirements per department, but just like a variety of, um, what I call access ways so that they can enter and be on the same page, even though they may not be reading the same material, what works for them. That's a huge part of decolonizing, doing what works for your students rather than what works for you. Um, because there's the idea of moving sort of the focus so that it's student-led learning, active-led learning, people, audience focused rather than the lecturer. And I'm just trying to think of what can be <laughs> transferred over. Um, no, I think there's just the connection to the present between history and talking about that. I'm sure most disciplines do that, but making not designating the past the past, making sure that it's a, um, across time, a spectrum, so that there isn't a, a disconnect. Um, and then removing the idea of that an objective reality is what a Western-centric objective. So acknowledging that um, different conclusions over um, just like space and time and how we come to things are are contestable because I think we, we have these ideas that no, there's this one truth for how um, a fact can be um, observed, which I think is harder in certain disciplines than others. I mean, being in the arts and the social humanities, I have the ability to question that. I know that's difficult for some, but uh, I do think that's something that needs to be, you, you will be challenged as an authoritative figure in a classroom. That is kind of the point. And you will have to reflect on why you're being challenged, not because it's considered an act of rebellion, but because um, it's a it's a point where you, you're supposed to be questioning your positioning in relation to your resource material. So if you hold biases and beliefs about the way the world is, where, the way particularly that your discipline should be, you're meant to be challenging that as part of the process. And when, when there's issues, for example, of structural inequality happening at your university, if that comes into the classroom, part of the decolonizing project is you have to account for that, whether it be strikes, whether it be discussions of inequity that's raised by students when they have real world issues affecting them, part of the decolonizing project because you're teaching about structural inequality is you have to also account for that it's not separate to your learning. It's it's a conducive part of their existence in your classroom if you're claiming to have a decolonized space. Fantastic. And I'm guessing part of that is listening to student voice as well, right, in terms of their experience, because obviously within the classroom, we have hopefully students from a whole range of different backgrounds, different experiences. And, and listening to that student voice is really, really important as part of that decolonizing exercise. Yes, I think a lot of people are doing that in ways like I, we're very quick to use the word decolonizing, but I think a lot of people are doing work that's conducive to what um, the decolonizing project is um, expecting. So if, for example, um, you're doing group led work and that you're creating a situation in your seminars where the students are having conversations with you rather than, for example, lecture-led learning, that's an element because you're 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 centering their voices in their learning and you're moving um what's the conventional um teacher lecture dynamic so that they are they lead and you follow and you correspond. And it is uncomfortable 
some in this age, but that's more common these days. I think people are looking for alternative ways um, for student engagement, especially post-pandemic. And that's something that's stepping in the right direction. Um, when you go off topic in a classroom because someone, a student is bringing awareness to an issue outside a classroom that isn't in your textbook, that's moving in that direction where you're creating a more equitable um, path to learning. And that's also fine. I think there's there shouldn't be pressure to decolonize if you if you if you're not completely aware and you're still learning about it. But the idea is to create a more equitable space that's fair and more reflective of the world around it in the classroom. I mean, that's brilliant. And I'm completely behind that. So what's your hope for the future, Amal? As Alex have said, we've come through like five years of a bit of like a, a realization and, and a more open calm dialogue about this. But what in the next five years, 10 years, you know, does this become the norm? Is that the hope? Uh, I I don't know if I want, because I'm sure decolonized with the way it's getting a buzzword. I don't know if that will be the hope. What I will hope is that people will care more about addressing structural injustice, which means I think in the, in the short term, and this is going to sound really cheesy, I think we will have to care more for one another. Um, I think my hope would be that... Um, there's a reparative education. So that's a um, a phrase and concept put forward by Graminda Barbara, not myself, where we if we we if we truly care about having a world that's fairer and freer for all, that we focus our attention in our institutions for reformatting them so that it reflects that. And I think that there's barriers to that. I think the neoliberal education system isn't exactly a fairer system. So there's a, a lot of challenges for how we conduct ourselves as a university coming. But I do hope that we move towards a path where we can authentically say that we care more for each other and we're putting processes that reflect that. Um, more empathy. Um, I think a, I think my, my mentor, Robbie, discusses a world of of world repair that I think would be something that I'd like to move forward. I don't know if that's coming, but that's what I would like. Well, that's certainly not cheesy. I think that's, that's a a fantastic thing to be striving for. Definitely. And I'm, I'm I'm bought into that already. (laughs) I'm glad someone does. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for your time today, Amal. I mean, this podcast is the developing practice podcast and we always like to finish in the same way where we ask our guests for a couple of take-home tips that the listeners can reflect on in terms of their own personal practice. So if you have a couple of things that uh, they could reflect on regarding decolonization, what would that be? So read more, uh, look out for moments of social injustice around you or going through difficult times. If you see a strike, if you see a protest, reflect on it, read on it, find out why that's happening find out what you can do to support, um, support initiatives in higher education that make uh, the university a fairer space for all, whether it be staff, whether it be students to exist in a healthy way. Um, And yeah, take care of each other. Brilliant. Thanks for your time today. I found that a really insightful conversation with them all. It was great how she discussed how we need to decolonize the curriculum, 
because we need to take a hard look at the way things are now as it reflects to what happened in the past. It's un- uncomfortable, but incredibly important. Amal also talked about how this involves diversifying the curriculum, but more so it is examining the structure of our programmes themselves to ensure that you are not reinforcing outdated norms. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I thought some of the um, things that Amal said really helped me to think about this whole concept of decolonising the curriculum. I thought it was really interesting that Amal reflected that the dialogue is challenging around this whole idea of decolonizing because she feels that colonialism and racism are so often linked. And as a result, we often try to sanitize the conversation because it can become uncomfortable. But it's so very important that we have those honest conversations and that we do the work. Well, there's lots there for us to go away and think about. If you'd like to take your thinking further, we've added some resources to the website on a specific podcast reading list, which you can access at liverpool.ac.uk forward slash the hyphen academy forward slash podcast. We'd also love to hear what you thought about the episode. So please do tweet us at Live Uni Academy, And you can also find us at eLearnerMatt or at Alexandra underscore Owen on Twitter. And we're really grateful for those who have taken the time to either rate or review our show in your podcast providers app. So if you haven't done so already, please do review the show or even better, simply share the episode with friends and colleagues on your social media. Bye for now.